Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. This special edition of EU Confidential will get started right after a message from today's sponsor. Today's episode is presented by ERT, the European Roundtable for Industry. ERT brings together more than 50 CEOs and chairs of European industrial companies operating worldwide to address a range of themes, including competitiveness and innovation, digital transformation, international trade, energy transition and climate change, and strengthening Europe's place in the world. Find out more at www.ert.eu. Welcome to a special edition of Politico's EU Confidential devoted to the UK general election. There are lots of political podcasts around which will no doubt be casting an eye over the election, but this is the only one that's going to bring together the UK and European perspectives. We welcome regular co-host Annabel Dixon in London. Hi, Annabel. Good morning. And joining her, UK editor Kate Day. Hi, Kate. Hi. And from Berlin, our chief Europe correspondent Matt Karnichnik. Hi, Matt. Hello there. So let's start with our UK team. Maybe, Annabelle, you want to just give us a quick summary of the, of the state of the parties, of the polls, and uh, what look like the most likely outcomes right now? I'm not going to be mad enough to predict anything, but um, as we stand going into the last few days, the polls are suggesting that the Conservatives are about 10 points ahead, which means you're looking at a sort of 30-40 seat majority um, that's obviously very imprecise, but that, that's sort of roughly what the pollsters are saying at the moment. But, 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 as we say in London Playbook, there's still a lot of undecided voters, and that's the kind of caveat that the pollsters keep pointing to. There's a very small margin in the first-past-the-post system between a sort of thumping great majority and a hung parliament. It just takes a few hundred votes in a few seats to, to change the dynamic. Right, I think that's one of the things that can be uh, difficult for some of our European listeners to get their heads around is it, it's not a proportional system. So when you look at the percentage share of the vote, uh, that doesn't necessarily reflect what the anything like what the percentage share of seats in Parliament will be. Uh, Kate, do you want to talk us through, based on those polls though, what seem like the most likely outcomes or, or scenarios? Sure, I think... It- It's looking, as Annabelle said, like Boris will get his majority, though with fairly large caveats. Uh, There could yet be a hung parliament. He could be denied the majority he's craved. But assuming he does get one, he will push ahead trying to get his Brexit deal through parliament. And not only will he at that stage have a majority of Tory MPs, 
who will back his deal, he has also made it a requirement for all of them that they will support that deal. So it looks very likely if Boris wins this election, he'll be able to push his Brexit deal through the UK Parliament. It will then, of course, be over to Brussels and the European Parliament to see if they're going to ratify the deal. But assuming that happens, the first stage of Brexit will be completed fairly quickly. If that doesn't happen and we get a hung parliament, it's possible that Jeremy Corbyn will try and get into number 10 with support from one of the smaller parties. I think most likely is the Scottish National Party, who've said they would consider putting him in number 10 provided he was to agree to a second referendum in Scotland. So then the future for Brexit and for the rest of the UK looks a bit more uncertain. In the short term, Corbyn will try and renegotiate with Brussels and then push for another Brexit referendum. There'll also potentially be a referendum in Scotland. Uh, So Brexit gets delayed. I think that's something we we know for sure if, if Boris doesn't get into power. Matt, what's the the view from Berlin? Does the UK election even uh, come up in uh, you know your conversations with policymakers, politicians, or or more broadly? I know you were in Rome at the weekend. Is it an issue? And can we say who Europe wants to win in this election? Well, I wouldn't say that it's an issue that is really top of mind for most people, but it does come up, and it is certainly seen as one of a number of major risk factors facing the EU in the coming months. My sense is that most people would actually prefer a clear victory by Boris Johnson if for no other reason than they really just want clarity. If there's a hung parliament, it will just become another muddled situation, which is what the European Union has obviously been dealing with for the past few years. And I think nobody really wants that to continue. Annabelle, jump in. Yeah, I was just wondering, have European decision makers given any thought to what sort of deal they would offer Corbyn because certainly in London the kind of Labour point that they they say you know we can do this quickly we've been speaking to Europe sort of in back channels um, you know would be pretty much ready ready to go with our deal. Uh, Yeah I can jump in on that one my impression is that because the the prospect of a of a Corbyn uh, government does seem less likely, let's say, than than some kind of you know conservative government, either a majority or or a minority one, as as we had uh, most recently. They haven't given a huge amount of thought to that. I would say there are different camps, obviously, always within the EU. Then there's a kind of spectrum of opinion. The repeated line of um, uh, Michel Barnier and others has always been: if the UK changes its red lines, then we can change the deal. And so I think, and and what I've taken that to mean and what they have implied, I think at times is if we move towards a more Norway style deal, that's kind of easier because we already have that model. It's not quite off the shelf, but it's a lot more straightforward than the kind of bespoke thing they've been trying to arrange. So if, as Labour seems to be indicating, they would be moving to something uh, more like that, uh, much more closely aligned with the EU it's certainly for the easier for the EU to do something along those lines because they have a kind of model to work with already. I think what worries people about Corbyn in Europe, in Germany, and in other parts of continental Europe is that they don't really know much about him, and he seems to be a figure who could be just as unpredictable as Boris Johnson has proved to be, but it seems to be a little bit of a devil-you-know kind of situation. So I, I do not think that... Many people are hoping 
for a Corbyn-led government, especially because that would mean we would be looking at a uh, another coalition government. And that, again, just creates a whole new level of complexity that I think most people would prefer to avoid. Right. And I think we would see the EU uh, at some point tested or the EU 27 tested if it looked like this was going to drag on for a lot longer. Of course, first, there would be a decision here on uh, whether to once again postpone the Brexit date. Right now it's set for the end of January. So first of all, the European Council uh, would have to have some kind of session or do what they did the last time, some kind of written procedure to extend things. And the question then would be, are they are they willing to kind of keep kicking the can down the road give Britain a second referendum and, um, you know, possibly end up with a different outcome. My sense is that people would go along with that. The, the line has always been, we have to have a reason for an extension. It seems to be that would be, a, you know, a valid reason. But there would be some, I think, who would be saying, look, this is this has gone on long enough. What do you think, Matt? Well, the short answer is that they would agree to an extension because something of this magnitude would leave them essentially with no choice. I think in the past, there have been times where the French in particular have wanted to really illustrate their dissatisfaction uh, with the way the process has evolved and so have pretended to oppose an extension only to come around uh, you know, at the last moment and, and agree to one. Uh, certainly, if there is some kind of coalition government led by Corbyn promising a, another referendum or something of that sort, then I, I, I don't think that the uh, European Council would have any other option except to agree. What, what sort of price do you think they would ask? Would they ask for some sort of concessions? You know, what, what would happen to the rebate? These are all questions that a Lib Dem Labour second referendum administration would have to ask. Would the Europeans see this as a, a sort of point of leverage? Uh, my guess would be, again, as Matt says, they would probably kind of talk about asking for things, but at the, at the end, maybe not ask for so much because they're big um, priorities to avoid a no deal. And so ultimately, you know, if push comes to shove and it's a choice between a crash out or keeping things going, keeping Britain paying into the EU budget, keeping things much as they are, they'll take that. I think one thing they would very much ask for, though, is the UK commissioner. At the moment, as you know, Ursula von der Leyen has taken office. It's a new European commission, but there's no British commissioner. There's a feeling that, that Britain's been walking quite a fine line. Part of the deal for this extension was that the UK would continue to be a kind of cooperative member of the union. By not nominating a commissioner, they walked pretty close to the edge of, of not really honouring the terms, although I know the reasons they gave were it's an election period, we can't do it. So I think at the very least we would have a British commissioner here. And the interesting thing would be to see what uh, title they would give them, because uh, first of all, Ursula von der Leyen is very good at coming up with creative titles. Uh, and second, uh, you know, we have a commission which is meant to be fully staffed and occupied by people covering all the important areas. So, you know, it could be that uh, famous commissioner for multilingualism uh, that Britain uh, gets. Matt? I think one important point here in terms of the European position is that they are going to want to avoid appearing to be too aggressive in trying to move the British debate in one direction or another. Uh, clearly, they would go along with a, another referendum if that's what happens, but I think that they would also be very, very careful not to insert themselves into the process. Right. But one, and one thing to note that uh, just from a Brussels perspective is things will get messy if this drags on because the European Union is trying to finalise 
its next big seven-year budget. That is one of the biggest fights in the EU. Uh, normally, Britain plays quite a prominent role in that, um, but it's a, it's a big deal. We have a new European Council president here in Charles Michel. There's talk of a special summit in February to try and strike a deal. The current budget runs, uh, runs out at the end of uh, 2020. So the pressure is on to get that deal, and the uncertainty of whether Britain would be in or out by the start of that period would complicate things even more. Um, let me ask a quick one to, to one of our uh, UK experts. Uh, our producer, uh, Christina, mentioned something which I think baffles a lot of people, which are these swing constituencies, the marginals, and how they affect the outcome. You know, are they like swing states in the, in the US? It's complicated, I know, is the short answer. But does anybody want to hazard a, a shot at an explanation as to how these things work and, and how we should watch results in election night? I'll take a stab. So (laughs) what you have to remember, I think, is that every seat counts equally. But in many seats, one party has traditionally been so far ahead that they really aren't in play during an election. So for a lot of the country, it's pretty predictable which way an individual area is going to vote. And that means that for the few seats where that isn't the case and where there's quite a small margin between the parties insurgent party can overturn the seat and then they have a new MP. In total, all other votes in that seat therefore don't count for anything. So these small number of seats where there really is a tight race could shift the balance. And one of the things that people here have watched very closely are seats across the north of England which have traditionally backed Labour but during the EU referendum backed leaving the European Union. And they're interesting because, of course, Boris Johnson's Conservatives have the clearest line on Brexit, but traditionally those are voters who would have never backed Tory. So one of the questions at this election is, will those seats turn blue, go for the Tories, and mean that overall Johnson gets a majority and that hurts Labour. The other thing that's interesting about marginal races in this election is that on the Remain side particularly, the vote is quite split. So you've got the Liberal Democrats promising to revoke Brexit altogether and cancel the whole thing if they won a majority. You've got the Labour Party with a slightly softer Remain message. They will renegotiate a deal with Brussels and then put that deal to a second referendum. You've got the Scottish National Party also backing a Remain option. You've got the Green Party also backing a Remain option. So you have several Remain supporting parties across the country. In a few instances, they've managed to do deals where one candidate steps aside because a stronger Remain candidate has a better chance in a seat. Uh, But in many places, that isn't the case. On the other side of the argument, the Brexit party have stood down in a number of seats that the Tories won at the last election. And so although there are a few instances where the Leave vote might be split, it's slightly clearer that way. That is an excellent explanation, I have to say. We're getting the thumbs up from Christina. You have demystified the British electoral system for for the continent and the world, Kate. Great stuff. Uh, anybody want to jump in with anything else before we wrap up? I think one thing that makes this very difficult for pollsters, um, and I'm no great defender of pollsters, but they keep flagging as a reason they may get it wrong again, uh, unusually high numbers of people are switching party and have been in the years since the Brexit referendum. And so 
while traditionally in British politics, you could model out a huge amount of an election result based on how people voted before and how areas voted before. This time, you've got a lot of people switching party. And in fact, at higher levels, we're hearing than has ever happened since World War Two. That said, this time round, there is a pretty much a consensus that the Tories are ahead and ahead comfortably. Uh, the question is, it seems how big is that majority going to be or has there been a miscalculation and do we end up with a hung parliament? There isn't anyone here predicting a Labour majority. So I think we'll just leave it there. Thanks to Matt in Berlin. Thank you. And thanks to Kate and uh, Annabelle in London. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Now, let's get out of the studio and into the campaign with a trip to Scotland, where the general election is quite different from elsewhere in Britain. That's because voters are considering not just whether to withdraw from one union, the EU, but also whether to pull out of another, the UK. Let's rewind for a minute. I represent Scotland within this house, and where I'm proudly Scottish, I'm also proudly European. After the Brexit referendum, Alan Smith, an MEP for the pro-independence Scottish National Party, gave an impassioned speech in the European Parliament that got a lot of attention. Scotland, of course, voted heavily in favour of remaining in the EU, while the UK as a whole voted narrowly to leave. But please remember this. Scotland did not let you down. Please, I beg you, Shakaleg. Do not let Scotland down now. Fast forward three years and Alan Smith is running for a seat in the UK Parliament, aiming to help stop Brexit by winning the constituency of Stirling, a real key battleground in this week's general election. And I met up with him on the campaign trail. That's the sound of Scottish rain, pattering on a bright yellow Scottish National Party umbrella. Holding the umbrella is Alan Smith, going door to door and talking to voters in the village of Drimmon, near the shores of Loch Lomond, on a cold, wet, grey afternoon. Hi. Hello there. How, How did you do? Nice to see you. Oh, Hello your there. wee hands are frozen. I thought <laughs> oh, mine were cold. Oh, keep holding, keep holding. I know. <laughs> Just out and about chatting to as many folk as we can. And because so much, so much strange stuff's going on at the moment. Uh-huh. And if you're watching the news for information, there's less information there. Yeah. So. Nothing substitutes for a chat, you know. That's it. Do you know, I've lived here 20-odd years, and you're the first one that's actually come Is that to right my now? door. Yeah. Excellent. I've managed Glad to avoid to them up. No more kidding. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's the first time. And you can hang no. garlic up, it keeps us away. Oh, it? Does it? This lady, sporting a fine pair of fluffy unicorn slippers, speaks for many when she's asked about the big issue of this election. How do you feel about Brexit? <sighs> like everybody else. You, you just, you know, they've had all these years to sort it out and they leave it to last minute and then, oh no, we've not got it, so we need to get... It's just everybody's so fed up with mm-hmm. it. Do you know, everybody's sick to death of listening to it and it's, it's, to me it's still not any further forward yeah. than it was. Well, this is the thing, I, I mm-hmm. want to stop Brexit because yeah. I, th- I think so much energy has been wasted by it. We've got mm-hmm. so many other things we need to be getting on with. The, eco- the economy, public services, the climate crisis. Everyone's taking a real backseat. Truly. To, you know? uh, and, and we've seen a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of nonsense down at Westminster. And mm-hmm. it, I don't know if you know, I'm one of your members of the European Parliament right. at the moment. So, okay. so usually I'm over in Brussels and uh-huh. the European style of politics, it's politicians sit down, put the badges to one side and try and work out an answer. Uh-huh. That's what That's I want the way to. it should be. That's Alan Smith's pitch in a nutshell. Stress he wants to stop Brexit, 
have a pop at Punch and Judy politics at Westminster, mention his European experience, and suggest that makes him someone more skilled in the reasonable art of compromise. He also, of course, mentions Scottish independence, but it's not top of the bill. Smith makes the same pitch again and again as he and a team of about half a dozen activists walk the streets of Drimmon, knocking on doors, delivering leaflets and chatting to voters. It's a helpful reminder for me, at least, of a couple of things. Scots like a chat, or a blether, as we call it, and voters don't fit neatly into boxes. We meet a woman who's pro-SNP, but fed up with Nicola Sturgeon, when the SNP leader is widely seen as a vote winner for her party. And even though Scotland and this constituency voted heavily to remain in the EU, there are Scottish Eurosceptics. As one of the activists, John reports back after a doorstep chat. They were saying that they reckon there's a butter mountain in Europe and a grain mountain in Europe, and that Europe is the worst thing that ever happened to the world, that they'd be much better trading with America because they're far more honest. We need to gently correct people in their misapprehensions <laughs> and not say, isn't it silly that you're so gullible, but... Uh, Telling people that, look, I'm sorry, you've been misinformed. That's not the case anymore. But there is a, a There's also a man who asks why voting isn't private. No one knows quite what to make of that one. I think we can now say it's grey, it's a bit wet, it's damp. The weather is officially dreech. Boris Johnson is not popular on the doorstep here. The British PM generally does not go down well with Scots. Here's an older, pro-SNP couple that Smith meets on their doorstep. We had the Conservative chappy here the other day there, and I was on my own. All right. And uh, I was very polite, but I told them that they should be ashamed of themselves and that they've got a fool and an idiot who's running. We didn't believe that he would get in. I mean, really, it was laughable. And when he did, we were gobsmacked, mm-hmm. absolutely gobsmacked. But what he said about Scotland and how disrespectful yes, he is to the Scottish people mm-hmm. is really quite sickening that he would uh, speak... The next day, I went to meet that Tory chappie, the man who's Alan Smith's main opponent in Stirling and has to deal with that kind of anti-Johnson sentiment. Uh, so I'm just outside the uh, Stirling uh, Conservative Party offices and uh, there's a group of volunteers on the, on the doorstep with uh, clipboards in hand. So it's a, it's a hive of activity on a, on a Saturday morning. Yes, yeah, Stephen Kerr, I'm the Scottish Conservative and Unionist candidate in Stirling constituency. Uh, when other little boys in Scotland were dreaming of scoring the winning goal at Wembley or the winning try at, uh, at Twickenham uh, against the English, I was dreaming of being a Member of Parliament. And that makes me sound very, very sad, but that has been my ambition. The key word in the way he describes himself may be the word unionist. Because while Alan Smith is stressing he wants to stop Brexit, the Conservatives are stressing they want to stop the SNP holding another referendum on Scottish independence. We're saying vote for the Scottish Conservative and Unionists because we believe in Scotland's place in the United Kingdom. We don't want a second independence referendum. We don't want a continuation of the political uh, upheaval and, and the uncertainties of particularly the last two and a half years. 
And in relation to the last two and a half years, we want to get Parliament working and we want to get Brexit sorted so that we can get back to the priorities that I think impact the lives of people on a daily basis. And none too subtly. Care is also playing the local card. Uh, one thing that strikes me, having spent time with uh, Alan Smith yesterday and with yourself today, it's yes. quite interesting that I would say each of you uh, doesn't maybe want to talk that much about what might be considered your flagship policy. Well, he's just moved into the area, which is <laughs> he's a welcome addition. Um, I think he may have just got the skis to his flat last week. It's great. We welcome everyone to come to Stirling. Um, and yes, what matters to the people of Stirling ought to be at the heart of this election campaign. So Stephen Kerr is stressing he wants to stop Scottish independence and Alan Smith is stressing he wants to stop Brexit. That probably makes tactical sense. This constituency voted clearly to stay in the UK and in the EU. But it makes for a slightly strange campaign when each candidate is stressing the other's flagship policy rather than their own. On air. It's nine o'clock, I'm Callum McQuaid. Labour leader Jeremy Corbyn's ruled out a vote on Scottish independence in the first two years of his... This constituency isn't just the centre of Scotland. Lately, it's felt a bit like the centre of the political universe. Theresa May and Nicola Sturgeon have been among the big hitters on the campaign trail here recently. And the New York Times and The Economist have also paid a visit. That's because this seat will say a lot about the way Scotland and the UK are heading on election night. Stephen Kerr won the seat from the SNP by just 148 votes two years ago. If he wins again, it'll be a sign the Conservatives may hold on to a good number of their seats in Scotland, making it more likely Boris Johnson will get a majority in Parliament. As for Alan Smith... He was back in the European Parliament a few days after being on the campaign trail in Drimmen. And President, in my last speech in this House, I'm a candidate for the Westminster election within the UK for Stirling constituency. Scotland's problems are not coming from this place, they're coming from Westminster. And if I win, I must leave this place. Remember this. If that turns out to be his last speech in Strasbourg, it will mean the SNP is likely to win more seats in Scotland than last time possibly making it harder for Johnson to push through his Brexit deal and giving the SNP a boost as they head into the next battle over the future of that other union, the UK. Now, one of the main concerns in this election, like many these days, has been the impact of digital campaigning, the risk of fake news and manipulation by foreign powers. Our own producer, Christina Gonzalez, caught up with our chief technology correspondent, Mark Scott, who starts off by explaining how the UK election is playing out online as compared to the real world. There's this assumption that the online world, Facebook ads, is this dark arts and it's all about magical tricks. But in the end, the Conservatives are focusing on Brexit, Labour is doing anything but Brexit, and the Lib Dems are doubling down on their Remain campaign. So pretty much it's everything that we're seeing in the offline world playing out online on Facebook. And the point with that is you have to disassociate this idea of these Facebook ads being something different than the traditional campaign. They're just another lever that the groups are using to get the message across. And can you give us a sense of how much money they're spending on these digital ads? So we have to basically use Facebook's transparency tools because the campaigns don't have to publish their records till six months after the election. And I just did a quick uh, calculation at my desk. And right now, as of 
I think three days ago, which is the latest figures, uh, all the political groups have spent about £1.9 million, which is on track to beat the 2017 spending. But what's more important is that we're likely going to see a significant ratcheting up of spending in these last few days, particularly the, from the Conservative Party, as they try and sort of get those final votes to come out for them ahead of Thursday. And I suppose the million-dollar question here is whether or not there's been any indication of foreign influence. It's the Russia question, isn't it? It's yeah. um, it's tough. Um, right now, officially and publicly, both Facebook and the UK security services have said there's been no interference. But what we have been seeing anecdotally on Facebook in particular is tactics used by some Russian groups in the past, particularly in the 2016 election, in relation to divisive um, political ads focusing on hot-button issues. Those have been popping up. The question is they've been coming mostly from domestic actors, many of which have borrowed heavily from the Russian playbook. And therefore, is that foreign interference? No, but it definitely is inspired by tactics that we've seen by foreign actors in the past. Can you give us a quick example? Yeah, so Brexit is the, is the the gift that keeps on giving in this regard because it is such a divisive yes-no question. And so we have seen a variety of domestic political groups, those frankly not tied to the political parties but ha- have a political view, and they've been putting out yes-no, go Brexit, vote against Brexit, uh, Facebook ads in the last month. Are those coming from Russia? No, but they are definitely borrowing the same playbook that the Russians used in 2016 in the U.S., So what can we expect in the final days here? Money, money, money. Uh, So if if we spent just under £2 million in the last month, I would expect that to at least 500000 if not more, to be spent in the next last three days. Um, It's going to get a lot more divisive, particularly focusing on swing constituencies that can really swing um, the vote either for the Conservatives or for Labour. And so I think in the last couple of days, what we will definitely see is a, a lot more money being spent the divisive nature of the ads significantly going up and frankly just everyone trying to just get those final votes to come out either from people who would be a traditional supporter of the parties or those frankly very few swing voters who who may swing it left or right. Is there any concern about the specificity of being able to target those swing voters? Yeah there's there's a significant concern from UK officials right now about what's going on on Facebook purely because they don't really know what's going on. They don't have the specificity that Facebook has in relation to access to data to really make a good judgment about what's going on. And ahead of the election, officials have been calling for new legislation to get this passed, to have a better sense of what's going on. But because of Brexit, nothing's been going on in Westminster other than Brexit. Therefore, electoral reform is definitely not the top of the list. Nick Clegg, who used to be the deputy UK prime minister, but who, but who is now Facebook chief uh, global lobbyist, he told me last week that as much as they are looking at maybe making it more difficult for political groups to target people online, that's not going to happen before Thursday. So it's still a black box. That was Mark Scott, Politico's chief technology correspondent. And that's all we have time for on this special UK election edition of EU Confidential. If you like the podcast, be sure to subscribe, rate, review and spread the word. And we'll be back with our regular edition on Thursday from the European Council Summit, the first with the EU's new leadership. I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Special thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and to all our contributors. And thanks to you for listening.
the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.